Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Ellen McGirt. Now, Alan Murray usually gets to say that, but he's on a well-earned vacation this week. But before he went away, we spoke with Beth Ford, the CEO of Land Lakes, the $15 billion farmer-owned cooperative. Now, we knew she'd be the perfect guest for Leadership Next. She's been working tirelessly on behalf of the farmers and communities who make up the Land Lakes network for years. But she's been stepping up her efforts of late, sounding as much like an activist and lobbyist as a big ag CEO. So we talked about all of that. We talked about how they've been applying breakthrough tech to help maximize yields and survive the rough patches she can't control, like weather. But we spent a lot of time on what she can control, and things like equity, justice, and how her low-key revelation, when she let the world know that she was the first openly gay female CEO of Fortune 500 company in 2018, is still making a big difference in the rural communities she visits regularly. But the first thing I wanted to know was how the coronavirus pandemic has impacted her business. The first thing, of course, anytime you're in this role and something like this unfolds, the first thing you do is check liquidity and <laughs> make sure that the business is stable um, for the long term and uh, have your CFO do a number of models, what happens if, what happens if, and then talk to the bankers. And we're in really good position. We had been working balance sheet issues or the strength of our enterprise even before this happened. So we're in a very strong position. The second thing that happens is you focus on your people. You know, I always felt like I concentrated on my, my team, my people, but you know, this is just a different level. It really is. There is fear. First of all, we wanted to eliminate that fear like we're doing a layoff. No, we're not. The business is operating. Farmers are planting. The business is, is surging um, in some areas, and it's softer in other areas. Food service. Food service shut down. And so we're going to hold hands. We're going to go across the river now, and I need you to pivot with me. So if you were doing something in food service and that's shut down, I may ask you to man the hotline, and I need you to say, yeah, we're going we're gonna to do that. And I'll tell you what, the level of engagement that we've seen from our team, I could not be prouder of them. It is very, very challenging. Our plants continue to operate. We have hundreds of plants, distribution facilities. So you say, what has changed? I think what I've heard from my team is we see you more because we're all in our home, right? We're all accessible. I'm not traveling. We see each other as multiple persons. So a good example is uh, right now I'm in my office, but in my, my home office quite a bit. And at different points in time, I may be on a call with one of my team. And one of my kids comes in because I always hide their electronics in my office, right? <laughs> I have one of my sons, you know, low crawling on the floor trying to get in there. And I'm in the middle of a, of a discussion like this. And I'm like, Jack, what are you doing? He was like, I need my technology, mom. <laughs> I got to get my... And so <laughs> they see me as a whole person. And I think there's a benefit to that. That's so interesting, Beth. I've heard that from a number of CEOs who say they are seen as more vulnerable and they think that's a good thing. They are more, they're more real, they're more authentic, and it's just a different kind of relationship. But I want to go back to something, you talked about what you did for your employees, but I want to talk about the customers because it was a huge, massive shift. All of a sudden, all the restaurants were shut down, food service was shut down, and everybody's buying from home and buying from retail. Do you have the ability to just shift channels and provide your product to people at home instead of people in restaurants and at food service? Uh, locations? Yeah. So a couple of things. That time frame is what we call flush. 
it's the most productive time for dairy cows. It's cool at night. It's not too warm in the day. And so they make the most milk then. And so it's always when we see a surge. And what we normally do then is we make what we call advanced state butter. We manufacture it and we put it aside for key season. Key season for dairy is Christmas and Thanksgiving. Right. We're all home baking. Well, now everybody's home baking. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, wow. So we're, we have the lines. I mean, again, our chief supply chain officer, Yanni Dewberry, his manufacturing head, Mark Short. I mean, they just really have been focused so tightly with the team to say, what does the team need? We're seeing a surge in demand. And can we continue to make butter? Maybe not put it aside. So, yes, we were able to do that. Now, the food service demand was the challenge because probably 15% of milk production range goes to food service. And then you can't just, you know, the little cups that you use to get in airplanes with butter, you don't just switch that and say we're selling that at retail. (laughs) Or the 640-pound blocks of cheese that you usually go behind the back of the house, you're not selling that to a retail customer. So there was long milk, and the team got so creative. Here's an example. Some of the, our customers didn't want the milk then because they weren't making those big products. And so what they did is they decided, you know what, would you co-man then on our behalf? We're going to create a product, mozzarella. We're going to have an R&T team, Skunk Works team, find out whether we could get something. We're going to get some packaging on behalf of the farmers. We're going to take it, we're going to co-man it, and we're going to go to retail. I think it was Cub Foods, and we're going to market it. They did this just like that. And so we didn't have to put milk on the ground. Many did because there just was a lack of homes. The agility of this team was pretty phenomenal. That's on the dairy business that we're known for. I will tell you on the feed business, you know what is surging? Everybody has backyard chickens. I don't know. Everybody's got them. Backyard clock, it's a thing. Uh, uh, not here. Everybody has them. And so Tractor Supply, we are a huge partner to Tractor Supply. We have our own dealer network. They are chick days, which is normally when people go and get these chicks. You know, let's say that we used to sell 5 million chicks. Or the, now it's like 7 million, 8 million. Everybody wow. has backyard flocks. Everybody's back to their home. And that means we were running the plants 24-7 to keep up with things like that. On the Winfield business, farmers are out planting. Folks normally know us as kind of a belly-to-belly business. Your agronomist, your feed partner, you know, your nutritionist is right there with the farmer. And here, we've been investing in technology and right. insights and innovation, and we've you know, moved to that. And that's uh, been more comfortable in many instances with the farmers. And we've seen just this acceleration in the use of that technology for orders and for insights than we had uh, seen in the past. Don't gloss over that, because I got a little preview in the 60 Minutes piece that you did last year with your very busy chief technology officer. I mean, the kinds of technology, using satellites, you are breaking it down, you know, field by field, sometimes within fields, what kind of fertilizer you're measuring, moisture and rain. I mean, just can you tell us a little bit about just the, the degree to which you're using technology? Yeah, I mean, this is an acre to acre, you know, view. You know, we're using um, sensors, IoT. You can capture all sorts of data from the combines, from the planters. We go through what we call our Trutera Insight engines for also for sustainable production and the data we're using. In Trutera, it's a trillion data points, literally the farmer's data. It could be what type of tractor do they have? How many passes at the field do they have? What did they plant? So it's not just what did they plant and what did they achieve. I mean, it's a collected and connected ecosystem that you're using. We have a huge data silo, farmer by farmer, acre by acre. And we have at the same time, our own applied research plots 
that have that data that allows us to match and say to a farmer, this is really how you should think about planting. These are the types of things. So it's a, an actual evidence-based in-person kind of work that we're matching with the data that is on their farm. And from that, we can make all sorts of recommendations. We can work with the farmer about what will be most sustainable and profitable and productive. That's the trick. That's really interesting. I don't think people are fully aware of how much data has the potential to completely transform the farm economy. But it can only do that if you have broadband access, if you have the pipes to carry all that data. You did a big deal with Microsoft to try and address these huge gaps in broadband access in rural communities. Can you talk about that? Oftentimes I'll go and somebody will have this wonderful invention, their own data and analytics and everything. And I said, that's interesting, but we can't use it because nobody has broadband out here. <laughs> so it's not like uh, my kid can't stream Netflix. This is, I can't use auto steer on the tractor and I can't pull in this data. It would be all manual. So I had met with Sacha last year, last fall, and we talked about the fact that this is an ecosystem. Yes, on the efficiency on the farm. By the way, they're also focused on sustainability and climate change, as are we. And you cannot make an improvement in whether looking at carbon capture, variable rate application of fertilizer, seepage or leakage into um, streams. You can't do that without data and without visibility. And so this ecosystem at the farm level includes those things. But we said broadband is broader than that. The reality is a farmer, a man or a woman, has a family. 95 to 96% of farms are still family-owned. They may incorporate as a business structure, but these are still family owned. So they have to worry about, I, I always think of my mom saying, you're only as happy as your least happy child, <laughs> right? Because mm -hmm. you're constantly worried about you know, their education. They lack technology. Like a third of the schools in rural America lack broadband. Most of these families take their kids to a parking lot an hour away that has best Wi-Fi so they can finish their work on their phone. This is simply unacceptable. I mean, it leaves us so uncompetitive. It's unbelievable. They have no health care because hundreds of hospitals in rural America has shut down. There's a shortage of 40,000 doctors in rural America. So when we talked about this, when Sachin and I talked about this, first of all, as an accelerant using AI, their technology, their farm beast program, we can improve the things we talked about at the farm level. But they saw it the same way, that this ecosystem is so important for the strength and vibrancy of rural communities and for the stability of that farm economy or of rural economies. And it's not just a rural issue. We need to understand this. This is an American competitiveness yeah, yeah. issue. I think it's really critical. I mean, it, Ellen talked at the beginning about how all of this is speeding up digital transformation, but that gap between the people who do have broadband and the people who don't have broadband is only going to get wider as this accelerates. Well, it is. And it's really going to be troubling as we get into the fall in schools. Many of these schools will not be able to open. And then we were afraid that when COVID goes to these rural communities, and it will be there, and it is increasing in rural communities, they lack healthcare access. So we can't do telemedicine without broadband, right? So we went out and did things proactively. We said, you know what, we're going to try to, in our communities, thousands of communities, we're going to try to See if we can turn on Wi-Fi in these communities. We're going to partner with the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, Health Partners, U Minnesota, all these healthcare providers and others who are interested, including Microsoft um, and others, to say we will offer free Wi-Fi, meaning come to the parking lot, so that you can connect with a doctor. And we then went out to governors across the country. We sent letters to the speaker, to the majority leader, to the president, 
And we said, these are the policy or regulatory changes you need to make. I can write you a prescription and not meet with you in person. Reimbursement rates should be the same as an in-person meeting. An out-of-state doctor can write a prescription or can see you. And I got to tell you, I am so excited. The Mayo has said they have had more telemedicine appointments in one day than they had all of last year. This is surging. It will be an efficiency and a game changer for many hospital systems or doctors because you know what? They're learning, hey, I can do a pre-meeting with that patient like this and decide whether they need to come into the hospital or doctor's office at all. And from that, then we've gone back now to the governors and said, can you make these permanent? Or at the federal level, can you make these changes permanent? Because now we're seeing this transformation. And then let's go back to the ecosystem of conversation. This is a stabilizer for these communities. This is a stabilizer for inner cities where they lack these access points for healthcare. To be able to say, now we have healthcare access, right? And that means that that's a game changer because we can't have people go two hours away to overwhelm a hospital who doesn't have the capability to support that general area. So I'm thrilled with that. Now we're focused a lot on the education component of it as well. The number of children, I think it's nine to 10 million in rural communities that lack any kind of technology or broadband access. And you can imagine we're going to see this economic disparity issue, this access issue widen. Is this how you first envisioned your job when you became CEO? Because I'm really struck by how much time and effort and love and energy you're pouring into advocating for farmers and communities. Well, here's the way I look at it. We're owned by farmers. I see their families all the time. We're owned by local retailers. I see their families and I'm in their communities all the time. And while we put in time, I I always say to my board, this isn't about Time. This is about being the conveners. It is awareness, advocacy, action. And so, first of all, making people aware, because most people say, I didn't, I didn't know that. Do you know where most food insecurity is? Rural America. One in three, sometimes one in four children are food insecure. Rising homelessness in rural communities. Lack of technology. So, to me, in my role, I'm running the business, so don't misunderstand. But this voice that we have to put out there to make change that leaves us all as Americans uncompetitive. This is a national security issue that we're all seeing right now. Why do we have a rush on the stores? They're worried about food and apparently toilet paper, right? (laughs) But we're worried about those basics. And I'm saying these are the people that are farming, that are feeding us. We should all be concerned about this. And this isn't somebody else's problem. This is all of our problem. And so do I see that as my job? I do because it's a business leader you have to stabilize the operating environment for your business to perform well. I mean, how do you perform well if you know that you don't have your child safe, if you don't have health care? I mean, I, I don't understand how that would work. Beth Cowett is an award-winning writer, a senior editor at Fortune, has been covering the food industry for years, a treasure in our newsroom, and a champion for getting up early, even with a new baby, to help us put CEO of Lando Lakes, Beth Ford's leadership into broader context. Beth, thank you, and welcome to Leadership Next. Thanks, Ellen, and thank you for that very nice intro. One of the things that Beth Ford talked about, which really surprised me, was her understanding of an investment in really big technology. At some point, she really sounded like a tech CEO. Could you talk a little bit about how Lando Lakes is using technology and the investments she's making? And really, my question is, is this unusual? This is definitely the direction that the industry is moving in. I think people realize that we have to increase our yields 
And to do that, we need technology. We need to figure out you know, weather patterns, the best time to plant, even you know, why a particular area of a field may not be growing as well as another. And, and these are things that technology can help us do. Agriculture has been a little bit slow to become digital. The rural and agriculture population is older, not necessarily as interested historically in adopting technology. But I think that that is changing because it, it has to. We have to get better at this. So another thing that really struck me was Beth's focus on not just the farmers who are part of the collective, but their families and their communities. She really sounded like a lobbyist or an advocate, but she does a particularly good job walking the line between, I care about these people because it's good for business, and I care about these people because it's the right thing to do. Does that sound right? Definitely. I would say that this is pretty unusual. I, I can't think of another CEO who's been this visible on this issue. She is really using her platform to advocate for these communities in a big way um, and in a way I've not, I've really not seen before. We rely on these communities to feed us. Their success is so critical to how we operate as a country. Right. And I think she knows they need to be strong. She knows there needs to be a compelling reason for the next generation to stay and work these jobs. I think it's really important. So one of her big pushes has been uh, broadband access. Right. And she's done a really good job at explaining why that is such a big deal. She knows that to make this a compelling proposition for farmers, for young people interested in staying in agriculture, um, this has to shift. Right. And the framing is so interesting. She's framing them as there's a woman on a smart tractor who's using high-tech tools to create better yields and healthier and safer environments for animals that, that she's tending that's part of a bigger system that we're all a part of. And I think particularly now that we're, I think, uh, during the pandemic, where we're thinking about every system, health and education and criminal justice, all of that, just thinking about what people's lives are like in rural America was a big missing piece in that puzzle. I think that's so true. I mean, I don't know about you, Ellen, but I've never thought about, and I write about this stuff, but I've never thought about my food supply more than I have during uh, the pandemic. I think that this is just something that we take for granted. And now it's come into sharp focus for us in a really big way. I'll tell you this, I came away from the conversation thinking if she was in charge with toilet paper, we wouldn't be worried about that. I know. <laughs> Next problem she needs to solve for us. Right. I'm here with my friend Joe Yukazoglu, CEO of Deloitte U.S., who also happens to be the sponsor of this podcast, and we thank you for that, Joe. Pleasure to be here, Alan. Joe, as you know, Deloitte and Fortune did a survey recently that found this economic downturn is different from probably every other recession in our lifetime in that it is accelerating innovation and accelerating digital transformation. I think something like 77% of the CEOs said digital transformation has been sped up by the downturn. How can that be? Alan, these are certainly not the circumstances that anyone would have wished for to serve as an accelerator for digitizing our society. But as a general rule, those companies that have made the investments in digitizing are having greater success weathering the current circumstances. What we're seeing is that clients are prioritizing investments in technology, software, cloud migration, and this goes well beyond automating the back office and taking out costs. I assume, though, that that means that the gap between the digital haves and the digital have-nots 
is going to get bigger. There's no doubt. I'm actually pretty optimistic around the potential for the real economy to experience a long period of tech-driven growth coming out of this. But there are definitely some big societal implications exacerbating the digital divide that we as business leaders are going to need to play a significant role in helping society navigate. Yeah, so important. Thank you for that, Joe. Great to be here, Alan. Alan, did you want to ask your supply chain question? Oh, oh boy, we're going to geek out now. (laughs) 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 To me, one of the striking things about this crisis is that many businesses have spent years perfecting their supply chains, very tight, very efficient, making sure absolutely the right thing gets to the right place at the right time. And then all of a sudden, wham, suddenly everything has changed. All the workers are at home. All the restaurants are shut down. Demand has changed from anything that any of the data ever suggested was possible before. And these tight supply chains have been a real problem. And I've, I've heard you talk about this. I know it's an issue for you and many food suppliers. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of slop in the system. Everything is just in time. If you look at the continuum in the value chain, you know who carries the most risk? The farmer carries the most risk. In a commodity environment, you can only lay off risk by increasing your scale or differentiating. And if it's a commodity environment, how do you do that? And you saw this cattle price drop 20 or 30%, hog prices at farm level, you know, 20, 30%. And it backs up. And so it's just terribly tragic that these farmers, especially the smaller ones who aren't part of a, a more fully integrated business, their animals get too big for slaughter for food and they have to euthanize. And we've seen, you know, euthanization, especially in hogs, at a, a significant level. Dairy, as we go back to it, they have to dump the milk. So yeah. that risk issue, that risk tolerance, what I say is that we've got to change the incentive structure because the biggest risk you have in a tight value chain in the food supply is that there are uneven incentive structures and the, the one that can't lay off the most risk is the farmer. So is it going to change? Are we going to move away from these super efficient uh, supply chains that business has built over decades and move to something that's more resilient? I think that we've seen some of the risks that are inherent in a value chain or a supply chain that is that tight. Would I say then instantaneously we're going to see something change in that dynamic? Well, this is the nature of business, isn't it? You know, you've got some level of consolidation and, you know, there's some farmers who have more scale than other farmers and you have some manufacturers who have more scale than others. I do believe there'll be a, more of a, a push towards differentiation and different incentive structures. And farmers are pretty smart. The original entrepreneur, the original environmentalist, they will figure something out to develop a robust revenue model that meets a different demand and can help um, with these other challenges that they're maybe not known for. So speaking of differentiation, I do want to talk about a big change that happened recently when you removed the image of the Native American woman from your logo on all your boxes. Now, you were way ahead out of all of that. You did it in your usual uh, matter of fact, no big deal style. And I can tell you from an inclusive leadership point of view, it was a big deal. Can you tell us a little bit about the decision and was there any backlash or anything like that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think everybody thought we, we were sneaky. Um, but the reality <laughs> is we did an interview right with your Beth Cowett, um, and we put that out there. So what was the impetus? Well, we're coming into our 100th anniversary here next year. 
And as we were doing that, we we're looking at everything. What is our packaging? What is our brand? What are we doing? So along this line, I'm looking at it and say, okay, this 100th anniversary, what is most relevant to consumers? Well, what we heard, especially after that 60 Minutes piece, is we didn't know you were a farmer-owned co-op. We didn't know that you were farm- Why don't you guys message that more? That's mm-hmm. most relevant especially younger consumers who were unfamiliar with Land Lakes, that was a reason to buy. That was something important. So we went through all sorts of consumer testing, packaging, testing, and decided that that was going to be something that differentiates us. That's different from most, right? This is the farmer-owned. The people on the package, those are our farmers. Those are our members. We say farmer-owned cooperative, proud of that. And I'll tell you, it has been uh, spectacular, the connection we've seen, the new entrance to our butter franchise, our product franchise. So it was about positively messaging who we were, messaging about the pride that we took in these farmers and the farmer ownership versus, I think, this view of a takeaway from. Now, you know, when you make a change like this, let's be realistic. Not everybody is happy. That's the truth. But what we continue to say and have said, and what has proven out, is that we're here to message appropriately to consumers and to those who are interested who we are, what the values are, what the membership means of a cooperative and the farmer, and thus the change in the packaging. I'm back with Fortune's Beth Coet. So agriculture makes sense to have a cooperative business model, right? So what do you think about it? What do you think are the pros and cons of the way that they're organized? Is there anything we can learn from that? Well, I do think that it is appealing to consumers today in a big way. People want to feel closer to their food. They want to understand where it comes from. Mm -hmm. And so I think even just from a marketing perspective, having people know that that's how Land O'Lakes is organized is is really helpful. It's not Mm -hmm. some faceless uh, organization. There are real farmers behind this benefiting. So I do think that in the food world, this is an interesting structure to look into just because people do want to feel like they know the true roots of what they're consuming on a day-to-day basis. Right. So last question, could you talk to us a little bit about her as a person? She wrote an article for us when the Supreme Court announced uh, discrimination protections for LGBTQ communities. It's a personal issue for her as well. I mean, she, I know that she cares about everybody and she represents fairness and is interested in equity, but this is also personal to her. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it's a great way of describing Beth. Um, she has worked in a lot of different industries. She's been in Atlanta Lakes for a couple of years, COO prior to becoming CEO. And when she was named CEO, she actually became the first openly a woman to run mm-hmm. a Fortune 500 company. And she sort of went about this in a very understated way. You know, there was there was no big announcement. If you didn't know Beth or read the press release carefully, which mentioned her wife, Jill, you would have no idea. And right. I remember talking to her about this at the time. And she said it didn't even come up with the board. And I, I think I asked her, do you realize this is Kind of a, this is a big deal. And her response to me was, it's not nothing. And that's, that is a very classic <laughs> Beth Ward response. And I think it's really important to her. You know, this is part of her identity. This is who she right. is. But I don't think she wants this to be the sole thing that defines her as a leader. She's very focused on running the business, on advocating, as we've talked about, for rural America and the farmer. So yes, I think it is part of her, the whole picture of Beth Ford, but it certainly is not 
the only thing by any means. I think anybody my age, I'm in my mid-50s, probably did that, you know, jujitsu with different pronouns and, you know, you're worried about is somebody going to find something out? And it was a different time frame, you know, as we went and and moved along our career. Um, What does it mean? You know, the fact of the matter is that you cannot be and perform at your best if you can't be yourself. That's the truth. And one of the foundational issues is feeling safe being yourself, feeling like you could support your family, right? That you're going to have your job, that you're not going to get kicked out. All of us, I think, want to be valued based on our leadership and our results and our connection, the, the work that we do. And this was such an important moment because this was a proof point that, again, you know, you have the right and the courts have upheld this, that everybody should have the right to be valued just based on their work and their, and they shouldn't be you know, held back from success because of that. I was asked this when I was named CEO, what does this mean? And I, I say, you know, I am grateful that my board values my family as they value their own family. And I'm happy that this moment messages to others that that is the way you can be judged, that you can step forward and you'll be valued based on your, your leadership and your capabilities. And I think that's what this says. You're safe, you're secure, there's law. You know, so I'm grateful for this moment, another moment of proof that you can be valued just being who you are. The last thing for me, I'm curious about how you saw the George Floyd incident play out. I know that you are you're focused on rural America, but that was your backyard, too. You know, it was Minneapolis was your backyard, too. I'm curious how it's impacted the company, if you feel or have been compelled to say anything publicly, or if you're talking about it with your partners and farmers, how is that all working out for you? Because it it really seems to have kicked off a pretty persistent national conversation about, about race and systemic policing. It really has. Um, so yes, uh, you know, this is right in our hometown. You know, many of us live in the Twin Cities. Uh, this was painful. Nobody, I mean, should die that way. This was just horrible, horrible. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, and I love the Twin Cities, but there have been obviously disparate outcomes between minorities and Caucasians here in this town, especially educational outcomes. And we see this in jobs and job security. Here through Minnesota Business Partners, and you know in the Twin Cities, there are multiple Fortune 500s. Um, The CEOs went out with a statement about the fact that we are all committed to investing in our companies and um, in the communities. We all, uh, certainly I did, held listening sessions. It was painful. I mean, absolutely painful. Because I don't know, here I was, I just said, boy, we all fear for our children. But I don't know what it must feel feel like to be afraid to have your kid go out to go biking. I can't have my kid go out on the bike because what happens if they get stopped? Yeah. I mean, it just is so behind beyond the pale. It's, it's like this mindset shift. It was painful to, to listen to our team did the listening sessions from that. I've required everybody on our leadership team to take unconscious bias training. We're trying to be more transparent with progress against our diversity, but you know, here, here's the reality. We hire well. In, my, in the C-suite, I have you know, a couple of African-American, black males, a number of women. But you know what? What I recognize is we're just not there. We, do, we are not 
building inclusion. Very clear from those listening sessions. Because we have the uh, senior leadership and then we have some folks at the director level of vice president. And then where, what is the pipeline? And then why are we having attrition problems? And we're not unique. And so this inclusion piece is the issue for us. And so we're really working to say, how do we change that? What are the things that are most relevant to our minority communities, but also to the organization? Um, so Minnesota Business Partners, I also on the Business Roundtable Board, the Business Roundtable Board is really working on this. I'm working on Jamie Dimon and Robert Smith's group on this financial disparities, wealth creation disparities. I think that there is a real desire to take action. I'm also not naive. I don't think any of us are. That this has got to be a long term. How are you showing up every day? How are you making sure that you're inclusive? How are you driving change? So there's not going to be one silver bullet answer. Yeah. This cuts across many, many areas. Well, Beth, thank you for everything you do. And thank you for joining us on Leadership Next. Thanks for having me. Hey, Leadership Next listeners. Wanted to let you know that next week, this hardworking team is taking a summer break. That means no new episode in your feed, but it's a great chance to go back and listen to any previous conversations you may have missed. We'll be back September 1st. See you then. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 